<clears throat> well, good morning, brethren. It's good to be here with you. And uh, whether you like it or not, I'm here. I'm going to share the word. And I would like to just quickly uh, pray one more time. I feel like I need to pray. So please accompany me in prayer. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for my brother's prayer and lifting me up in prayer. And thank you for the prayers of the saints. Thank you that you hear us. Thank you that Jesus died for us. And I pray that you would open up our eyes to your word and that you would uh, speak to us clearly, Lord God, through your word, through your written word that you have given us. Help me, Lord, please. Grant me power and grant me the ability to articulate clearly the things that are written in your word, O oh Lord, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We will be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts 2. And I'm going to read verses 41 to 47. Acts 2, 41 to 47. It says here, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is the account of the early church after the day of Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit, the new covenant, new creational measure of the Spirit is poured out uh, upon the church. And the believers, the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we see in the context of this text that they start speaking with languages, uh, different languages that are understood by the people and the people gather around. This is an awesome sight. And then Peter gets up and he preaches and he preaches Christ. And as a result, we see what happens here. There are many who believe. And the early church gets its, its start. This new covenant church. Now, when you read this text, when you read this passage, and if you were paying attention while I was reading, what, what, what kind of words came into your mind? What, what adjectives would you use to describe the church and the events written about here. Gladness. Gladness. Amen. Or perhaps you think of words like amazing, right? Powerful, impressive, even extraordinary, surprising, radical, maybe. I can think of other words. Explosive, glorious, incredible. Uh, yeah, I could go on. I could reiterate the same words. If you thought of stuff like this, of words like this, if words like these have entered your mind, uh, you have every reason to think this way. 
this passage gives us a portrait of, of this, like I said, of this church after the day of Pentecost. And it is one of several summary statements that we find in the book of Acts. As scattered throughout this book are brief descriptions that sum up the life and the worship and the function and the dynamic of the early church. And this one is the most complete and detailed of the summaries that we have in this book. It describes the church in its nascent stage. As I mentioned, the the church has been gloriously birthed officially uh, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Officially inaugurated, Christ himself having accomplished redemption, having been exalted at the right hand of the Father, he himself receives the Spirit. The Spirit is given to him as the the perfect God-man, the Messiah, in a unique way, and then he pours it upon his church. It flows from Christ to his church. It flows from the exalted Christ. And without a doubt, Luke, the author of Acts, wrote this portion of scripture to leave us completely blown away, awestruck, awestruck with the dynamism of the early church. And we should be filled with wonder. And this should lead us to worship God for his incredible work. We see events here that are so extraordinary that only God could have done it. The Spirit was poured out upon the disciples in the upper room. And they began to speak in languages, tongues. This drew attention of the people of the city. Peter preached, and he preached Christ, and 3,000 3, souls were saved, as we read here. 3,000 souls, verse 41. In one single day, can you, can you imagine that? I mean, that in and of itself should just leave us stunned. We should, we can probably be stunned for days just thinking about that. 3,000 souls in one day. In his whole earthly ministry of about three and a half years, our Lord Jesus only won somewhere around 500 to 600 converts. And on the day of Pentecost, there were 120 there in the upper room and They were faithfully waiting for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. I don't know where the others were, but in one day, more souls are won for Christ than in in the entire earthly ministry of Christ. That is amazing. Now, Isaiah 49.4 tells us that Christ seemed to have labored in vain. And we see that in the Gospels. He worked tirelessly, day and night. He was preaching. He was teaching. He was healing the sick. He was cleansing the lepers. He was casting out demons. He was serving the people of Israel. He emptied himself, took on the form of a slave. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He served Israel, but they did not listen. He came to his own But his own did not receive him. Most of Israel were hardened. In fact, it was the very same people who saw the signs, who heard his teaching, who later cried out for his death. They said, crucify him, crucify him. 
Nevertheless, in Isaiah 49, we also see that this promised servant, the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, his work was most certainly not in vain. And he would it would bear fruit and he would see the reward of his suffering. And, and this reward would go throughout all the earth. This work rather would go throughout the whole earth. They would see his salvation. And in fact, Jesus himself has taught, had taught his disciples in John 14, 12, that they would do greater works than he. After he returned to his father and after the spirit was poured out. Now, I know in these days, you know, charismatic, charismatics like to point to that passage to say that, well, we, we can do greater miracles than Jesus. I, I don't think that is what Jesus was referring to. He was referring to the scope of his work and the reach of his work. His disciples would have a greater reach than him and his work. His word and his gospel will go forth to all the earth, to the ends of the earth. And it was God's foreordained plan that it would be so. That Christ's work would have unparalleled success through his disciples. It was the same work. It was the same ministry. It was the same Christ. But now working through his disciples, his kingdom would be furthered. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the continuation of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Acts 1.1 Jesus continues teaching, continues preaching, continues working, continues doing miracles, continues saving through his disciples. It's the same ministry. He furthers redemption through his body. He is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. And through the Holy Spirit, he works through his body. And in, in Acts 1.8, he told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem. And he, he told them that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit had come upon them. And they would be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And we begin, begin to see the fulfillment of that here. There is a massive work of salvation. 3,000 souls. Now, I am almost certain, almost certain that you haven't seen 3,000 souls saved in your whole life, let alone in one day. This is amazing. And, and this, my friends, this was not a, like the evangelistic crusades of our time. These massive events that fill up stadiums in which thousands come. They come forward to make quote-unquote decisions for Christ. They repeat a prayer. But then the next Sunday comes around and they can't be accounted for anywhere. You can't find them in any churches. Where did they all go? They just disappeared. They made a decision for Christ and then they just vanished into thin air. No, brethren, these were true conversions. What we see here were true conversions, and we see this in the text. We know this is so, first and foremost, from verse 41. An amazing fact is that they received his word. They received the word that was preached by Peter. If you read Peter's sermon in this chapter, if you read the entire sermon, you'll see that this was no feel-good you know, sermon, watered-down message, seeker-friendly message. Peter preached hard words. He preached Christ exalted, Christ crucified. He preached uh, Christ prophesied in the, scripture, in the scriptures. But he, he also accused the people of their sin. He indicted the people. 
You lawless people, you have crucified Christ. You have taken this Messiah, sent and approved of God, and you have murdered him. You are murderers. That was his message to the people. Now he does clarify that this was the preordained, predetermined plan of God. Nevertheless, he lays the responsibility on them. You have murdered Christ, your own Messiah. It's not easy to be accused of being a murderer, is it? But they received the word. They were cut to the heart, verse 37. They were convicted of their sin. And what did they cry out? Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were cut to the quick. And we see them repent here in the, in the context of this chapter. They repent. And they are baptized. So they received the word of God. They received a, a, a hard sermon. And they are baptized. They publicly identify with the very man that they had declared to be a criminal 50 days earlier. And this was not an easy thing to do. It's not easy for man's ego to say, you know, I'm wrong. I was wrong. Especially when you do it publicly. I was wrong. And in fact, it was a dangerous thing for them to do because the religious elites... They had declared Jesus to be a criminal and a blasphemer. They had approved of this and carried out, in fact, his execution. They believed him to be worthy of death. So by publicly identifying with this uh, convicted criminal, it it was not an easy thing to do. And their lives were in jeopardy, were in danger. Or could have been in danger at the very least. And furthermore, we we see that these conversions are real by the fruit of the perseverance demonstrated in these disciples and these new converts. We see the conversion, rather we see that, that the conversion of these souls was in no way superficial, spurious, or momentary. It was lasting. These were, this was lasting fruit here. Luke very carefully describes the impact and the intense and permanent spirituality uh, of these new believers. He displays it here in, in verse 42. It says, and they continued steadfastly. They continued steadfastly. And the, there's one Greek word that's used to describe this. This, this is translated from one Greek word, proskartereo, uh, which describes a continual, constant, perseverant devotion. The disciples were perpetually given to worship. They worshipped individually and they worshipped as a church. And we see that in, in the described in greater detail in verse 42. How they continued steadfastly. How they were uh, entirely devoted to the Lord and His church. We see here a wholehearted devotion to the apostles' doctrine. What is that talking about? This is the teaching, the teaching that came from Christ, delivered from Christ, delivered by the hands of the apostles. They taught it. They taught the people. And the idea that we see here is that these disciples were not lazy hearers. They received the word. They not only received the preaching from Peter and they were saved, but they continued to receive it daily. 
They received the apostles' doctrine. They received the gospel of Jesus Christ and everything that had to do with it. The teaching from the scriptures. I can imagine these disciples being on the edge of their seats as they are hearing the preaching of the word. They gladly received the word. We could even say they memorized the word. They received it. They memorized it. They studied the scriptures to see if the things were so that they were hearing. They were devoted to the Word of God. Next, we see that they were also continually devoted to the fellowship. In the Greek, koinonia. This is a word that some of us are familiar with. It describes a mutual partnership. A mutual sharing. A mutual participation of of life one with another. The disciples here were living together. They were worshiping together. They were zealous for one another. They were zealous for the church. They loved the brethren. These were not pew warmers, brethren. These were not merely Sunday Christians. They had a fervor for one another. They had a fervor for the church. Desirous to be together, to worship together. And they continued in this. They also continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. And what is that referring to? That is referring to the Lord's Supper. This ordinance given by Jesus Christ, they were zealous for this. In fact, in the rest of of these verses, we see that they engaged in this daily. They were meeting together daily and they were having the Lord's Supper daily. At least that is the conclusion we can come to when it says breaking, they were breaking bread from house to house in verse 46. They were zealous for the Lord's Supper. So they were zealous for the doctrine that they were receiving. They were zealous for the word of God. They received the word of God as the word of God delivered through weak men, the apostles. They were zealous for the fellowship, fellowshipping with one another, the church, meeting together, worshiping together. They were zealous for the Lord's Supper. And finally, in verse 42, it tells us that they were, they also continued steadfastly in prayers. That's what the New King James says. Literally in the Greek, it is the prayers. I don't believe this is referring to prayer in general, though, of course, they did that. They, they, they live lives of prayers. You can read the whole book of Acts. You see disciples continually given to prayer, generally speaking, individually. They, they were men and women of prayer. They continuously went before the Lord. But I believe this is referring to something more specific. The prayers. It's something we also see in the book of Acts. There were specific times in which they met together as a church to pray. The prayers of the church, the corporate prayers of the church. They did this deliberately. They did this constantly. Now, we're not told what time they specifically had prayer meetings as a church or what days or, you know, well, from this chapter, we can conclude that they were meeting together daily to pray. At least at this point in time, they were meeting together daily to pray. 
Sometimes they had prayer meetings spontaneously because of the circumstances, like in Acts chapter 12. Peter is in prison. James was killed. They could do nothing but pray. They, they got together and they're praying. And I, I find that an interesting story there. I, I say that parenthetically. An interesting story because the disciples are praying fervently for Peter to be released. And finally he's released and they don't believe him. <laughs> they don't believe it's Peter. They don't believe their prayers were answered. It reminds me of a story that Joel Beakey once told of, of, of a bar that, in some town, there's, they built a bar there and, uh, the, the believers, a, ch- a church, nearby church was praying for that bar to be shut down or something, to be taken out. And I, I believe it was a, a storm or, can't remember exactly, it was some kind of cataclys- cataclysmic activity that, <laughs> and, and the bar was destroyed. And the owner of the bar blamed the Christians and he wanted to take them to court. It's your fault. And the Christians were like, well, we didn't do anything. We, you know, what did we do? And, and the judge was like, well, this is an interesting scenario here. You know, the, 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 this unbelieving bartender, ha, you know, believe, has more faith in prayer than, than the Christians do. <laughs> but, Anyway, the, the believers were meeting together to pray. They were zealous for prayer. They, they wouldn't, they tried not to miss a time of prayer with the church. And then in verses 43 to 47, and we're not going to look at, at this in depth, but this gives us a more detailed picture of the life and the dynamic of the early apostolic church. We see in verse 43, fear and awe coming upon every soul. Now, this reference to every soul is, I believe, more general, more general reference, uh, not to the church only, but also generally speaking to the inhabitants of Jerusalem as a whole. And not just the Christians, uh, the, the people witnessed the power and the work of God and they were struck with fear. Even the unbelievers were struck with fear. They were, they were, they were seeing, they saw what happened on the day of Pentecost and they were seeing the miracles that were being done and they were, they were in awe and they were fearful. Even the unbelievers trembled. They were made to tremble at this amazing work of God. And we see that the apostles performed signs and wonders. Christ's supernatural power was working through his disciples. Can you imagine that? Healings, miracles. We're not, we're not talking about Benny Hinn here and people falling over backwards and, and all these people coming forward and not really being healed. It's, a, it's fake. Can't be even be verified medically. We're talking about real healings. People who are lame, who are blind, who are deaf, people who are lepers, coming and being healed. The disciples praying over them, perhaps even being healed without prayer, perhaps through the preaching. You know, historically that that has happened. People have been preached. People, by the way, people a lot. You know, many people were, were were healed in the ministry of Charles Spurgeon. That's an interesting fact. You know, he, he wasn't going out, going around having, uh, you know, healing campaigns. He preached the gospel 
It was God's supernatural work. You know, uh, God can do whatever he wants. But we saw we, we, we see this awesome side here of healings, miracles. We also see the intense unity of the disciples. The disciples were so full of love, the love of Christ. They were so full of the sacrificial love of Jesus that they were willing to share everything they had with their brethren. They would even sell their properties in order to give to those who were poor, who were needy. They didn't hoard things for themselves. They gave things away. Now, it doesn't seem like they were giving away uh, necessarily. Maybe it could have been, but necessarily they're giving away their own houses, but they were giving away extra properties, extra things that they did not need. Because we also see in the text that they met together in houses. If they had given away all their houses, they wouldn't have houses to meet in, all right? But they were giving away the excess. I don't need this. I don't need this. I don't need this. Here, apostles, take it. You distribute it as the church has need. Nowadays, in our times, you know, in social media, it has been now this this concept of uh, minimalism has been popularized. Right? You live with the absolute minimal amount of things that you need. Well, the the early church were a bunch of minimalists. They got rid of the excess. For the, for the sake of the kingdom of God. For the sake of helping their brethren. And by the way, this, this, contrary to what some liberal scholars would have you believe, this is not communism. This is not even socialism, what we see here. Okay, this is not the government, uh, making people share their goods. Because that is what socialism is. It's theft. It's a government that tells you, you have to share. No, they were sharing out of their own, the abundance of their own heart. No one was telling them to do this. They were sharing because they wanted to share. This was not imposed by any group, not even the apostles. Furthermore, we see that they would gather daily to worship together in the temple and from house to house. And they were worshiping together. They had an amazing unity. They weren't constantly fighting and bickering with one another, contentiously debating, jealous or envious of one another. They fellowshiped together daily. And they didn't want to stop having daily fellowship. Living together, worshiping together, eating together, verse 46, with gladness and simplicity of heart. Gladness, simplicity some verse, uh, translations say generosity, uh, generous hearts. The picture we have here is just a simple and simple-minded unity. The simple life, truly the simple life together. And they were praising God, verse 47. We have a picture here of a church that is continuously joyful, continuously uh, united, filled with the Holy Spirit, Worshipping the Lord. And finally, in verse 47, we see that their lives were so other. They were, they were so unique, so distinct from the world. They, had, they were so f- full of love. So full of unity. And so full of the power of God in their lives and in their midst 
that they had favor with all the people. Even the unbelievers couldn't you know, just explain away what was happening. They, they, they saw that it was really happening. Well, they may have tried to explain it away somehow, but they, they couldn't deny what was happening. happening. You see, even some of the accounts of the unbelievers uh, in the first few centuries, what they have to say about the early Christians. They, they were even amazed. Even some of the critics of the Christians in the early centuries, they were amazed how they loved one another. That's exactly what Jesus said, isn't it, in John 13. They, they will know you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And so these unbelievers are amazed and uh, God causes them to have, you know, causes the church to have favor with these unbelievers at this point in time. And every day, every, every day God is adding to the church daily. He is saving in verse 47. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. People were being saved, converted. They were seeing salvations every single day. That is amazing. What we see here in this text is the closest that we'll get to a utopia in this depraved and fallen world. It's the closest we'll get to paradise. Forget your notions of, you know, a, a paradise, paradise through politics, through communism, you know, through a political leader. It's so sad that some, many indeed, who profess to be Christians nowadays are, are putting their trust in a political leader. You all know who I'm talking about. He's going to get us out of this. Oh, yeah, he was wronged in the election. He's going to get us out of this. So many people who claim to be Christians putting their trust in a politician, trying to change things through politics. I was speaking to a lady at the the migrant center where I go to preach the gospel, and she was some kind of representative, political representative here in San Antonio. And she was saying that the only way to change things, you know, is through... They're voting. And I was telling her, well, I don't, I don't really trust in the voting booth. <laughs> and she was like, well, she's, she was like, well, that's all we got. And later reflecting on that, I was like, no, you know, I was thinking, no, that's not all we have. We have God. We have the Lord. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank God that we don't only have the voting booth. And even, even if we had the voting, even if we could trust that the voting machines work correctly, what, what will that change? Even if you have a, a conservative leader in the White House, what will that change apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and from an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon His church? We see here heaven on earth through the outpouring of the Spirit. We, th- this is what many of us have come to call revival or an awakening. And this is realized not by or through coercion not through human power, not by politics, but by God's power. And so, you may very well marvel at this text. This should move you to worship. This should move you, the the extraordinary work of God here in the lives of the disciples and how He changed hearts here. And the revival work here should produce 
worship in you. You should praise the Lord, remembering this historical narrative. This is meant to lead you to adoration. But this is not the only thing that this should lead you to. These verses, my, my brethren, I, I submit to you, these verses were written not only so that believers would merely behold what God did in the past and just marvel. These, these verses were written, the Holy Spirit inspired these scriptures to propel us to obedience. To teach us and to propel us to obedience. This text and generally all of Acts has a didactic, has an instructive purpose for us. God wants to teach us through this. Now, Acts is historical narrative. We need to recognize that. It's a factual account of things that actually took place. But because of this fact, some claim that, well, we need to be really careful here. This is not like the epistles. This is not propositional teaching here. These are not prescriptions that we find here. These, these are descriptions of the early church. So you need to be careful. Some even would say, don't get your doctrine from the book of Acts. Oh no, you got, you got to go for, to the epistles for that. I, I, I've even heard some people say that you know we can't preach expositive sermons from Acts. Maybe we could do a, a Sunday, you know, Sunday school teaching through Acts. We can't do expositive sermons from it. And I believe that's going way too far. <laughs> yes, it is historical narrative. Yes, we definitely need to be careful with any historical narrative of Scripture. Because just because something is described in Scripture doesn't necessarily mean that it's normative for us, for the church in every age. And in fact, some, some things described in this text couldn't possibly be normative. Like the salvation of 3,000 3, souls. I mean, could you repeat that? <laughs> Were we meant to try to repeat that? Uh, or we can certainly pray for that, and we should pray for souls, definitely, but... Did God meant for us to repeat it every day? That's what I'm referring to. That's a work of God. It depends on His sovereign power. Or meeting at the temple in Jerusalem. Obviously, we can't do that anymore, can we? Or the miracles sovereignly bestowed by God through the apostles. Miracles are in God's hands. Certainly, we can pray, and I believe we should pray for the miraculous. But we of our own selves cannot Repeat that. This is, you know, how, how can the church, uh, you know, produce that daily as we did it here and, and to the extraordinary degree of the apostles? This is, you know, miracles are in the hand of God. God is sovereign and he does whatever he wills. Nevertheless, here in, 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 in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, it, it's very clear the teaching of this text, let me read it to you because this is a necessary reminder for us. Second Timothy 3.16-17 to 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture is inspired by God. It is God-breathed. And it is profitable for our teaching, for our instruction. And that includes the book of Acts. We certainly can get doctrine out of this 
texts. And we, this should be taught in churches. And what we find here is we, we find the example, the model, the ideal of the Christian life, how the Christian life should be. Again, I'm not referring to some of the specifics. We can't meet at the temple. And many of us certainly can't meet daily. Um, it's not possible for us to meet daily. It was for, for th- these believers at this point in time. We're not told that they met daily, daily later on in, in, the, in the book of Acts. And even with certain details like the selling of the extra goods, we, we are told in 2 Corinthians 9-7 that, that we are not to give under compulsion, but from our hearts. So we are not to see this fact of the disciples selling their goods to help one another as uh, an absolute command. You must, you know, if you have an extra par- property, you must sell it. You absolutely must sell it and not use it for some other kingdom purpose. Or, you know, uh, we should not interpret this as an absolute command. So we are, we are to compare Scripture with Scripture. And yes, the epistles give us clarity, give us more light on what the historical narrative tells us. And we are to compare the Bible with the Bible. That will help us see what is normative for the church. But brethren, let, let us be careful of going to the extreme where none of the book of Acts applies to us. And, and sadly, that is the attitude of some people within the Reformed world. Oh, that, that was, you know, they, they relegate the, the book of Acts to the past. Oh, that was unique. The day of Pentecost was a unique, redemptive, historical uh, occurrence. And I'm not saying it wasn't. But therefore, they conclude that, you know, the, the Spirit cannot be out, poured out upon the church in, the, in a similar way now. And we ought not to be seeking for that. And we ought to merely be satisfied with whatever we have. And however we live. And however dry our Christian life may be. And they may not always be communicated with those exact words, but that is nevertheless what is communicated by, by many within the Reformed world. It's a, it's a cop-out for disobedience and seeking the Lord. Trying to justify their coldness and indifference and their lack of desire for more of the Lord. Oh yes, we, we, we can be satisfied in Christ, but that, that is kind of a paradox. We are satisfied in Christ, but yet we want more of Him. And we are to seek for more of Him. And, and, and this, as I said, is the Christian ideal here. The overall picture that we see here is the model for the Christian life. And I'm referring, generally speaking, to the sacrificial love, the unity, the zeal, the devotion, the piety, the holiness, the fervor of the disciples, their spirit-filled life, the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And insofar as they reflect Christ, we are to imitate them. And especially verse 42, I, I especially think that this verse is normative for our lives. We are to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. We see from the rest of Scripture that this is certainly normative. But insofar as the disciples followed Jesus and reflected Jesus and were spirit-filled, we ought to desire to imitate their lives and desire what they had in their lives. The work of the Holy Spirit. 
And we ought to desire intensely an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Jesus said we would be witnesses for him. We would be witnesses for Christ when the the Spirit was poured out. And certainly he was poured out in a unique way once and for all on the day of Pentecost. And yet he continued to be poured out upon the believers. And believers continued to be filled throughout the book of Acts and throughout church history. And we ought to desire that. The empowerment of the Spirit to be a witness for Christ. To be witnesses for Him. That, that is why, that's why we're here, my brethren. To be witnesses for Christ. Wherever we are. Not all of us are called to be missionaries. Not all of us are called to be evangelists. But we're all called to be witnesses for Christ wherever you are. Starting with your family. You know, starting with, with our own Jerusalem. Starting with your family. To your neighborhood. To your city to your state, to your country, to the world. And the Holy Spirit gives us the empowerment to do this. We need the Holy Spirit's empowerment. The Spirit's empowerment is not just for preaching. It is for living the Christian life. As, as Paul Washer once said, I, I, you know, I used to pray for the filling of the Spirit to preach, but now I pray for the filling of the Spirit to tie my shoelaces. We need God's help. We need to be dependent on Him. We need His power. I need God's power to love my wife, to not get, you know, angry and exasperated with my kids. I need the the empowerment of the Spirit to be Christ-like at home. We need it, brethren. And often we, we don't see how much we need this. We need personal revival. We need family revival. We need corporate revival. And as a church, even as a nation, we need national revival for the churches. Oh, that we would see this, that we would see this, that this would be a reality in our lives. Though the things that here written may seem radical, may seem extreme and extraordinary to us, and there is a sense in which they are, there is also a sense, sense in which we need to view this as normal Christianity. This is normal Christianity. This is the standard, brethren. The Christ-likeness of the church the standard, insofar as they imitate Christ. We ought to imitate them. How do we compare in our lives? How is our devotion to the Word of God? To the congregating here on the first day of the week? How is our devotion and zeal for preaching the Gospel? For being with one another? For being united with one another? For taking of the Lord's, Lord's Supper? The prayer meetings. How do we match up to the church? How do we measure up to to the early church? This was not a perfect church by any means. Please do not get me wrong. This was not a perfect church. And we see the imperfection of the church very quickly, very very early in the book of Acts. This was not a perfect church. And nevertheless, it was a spirit-filled church. And you'll never find a perfect church. To my shame, I must confess to you that... uh, in, in recent uh, times, a, a month ago or so, I, I had this thought that entered into my mind and I made the horrible mistake of sharing this with my wife. I, I had, you know, this thought came into my mind. I said, you know what, I'm, I'm done with comfortable American Christianity. And 
Not that there aren't problems with American Christianity. There are. And there are problems with every kind of Christianity in every country. Uh, but I, and I thought, well, you know, that, that's, that's an arrogant thing to say. You know, I'm done. Like, who am I to be done with anybody? <laughs> you know, I'm a debtor to all men. Uh, we, we ought to owe nothing but to love one another. And, you know, is, is God, is Christ done with American Christianity? You know, I'm talking about the real church here. I'm not talking about false, you know, false movements, false megachurches here. I'm talking about the real imperfect church. Christ is not done with me. Certainly not done with me and my imperfections and my carnality. He is not done with his church. And you'll never find the perfect church. You don't even see it in the, in the, in the New Testament. You'll never find the perfect church. Some people say we need to return to the, the, the church of, of the New Testament, but they have a wrong concept. They have idealized the church of the New Testament so much. And I say to those people, well, what, what church do you want to be like? The church in Galatia? Struggling with, you know, the Judaizing heresy? The church in Colossae? Allowing false doctrine in their midst? The church of Corinth? With all their carnality? Laodicea? You know, Sardis? What, what New Testament church do you want to be like? And we need, we need to be careful with that. And nevertheless, there is, there is, uh, we see here that we ought to imitate, seek to imitate the early church. But again, I reiterate this point, very important, insofar as they imitate Christ. So let us examine and analyze our own hearts. I'm not talking about perfection. Let us analyze our own hearts. How's my love for the Lord? It's time for a soul search. How am I before the Lord? Am I reflecting at least a little bit of this? Maybe it's not to the same degree as the early church, but am I reflecting the early church? Am I zealous? Zealous for my church? Am I zealous for prayer and for the prayer meetings? Am I zealous for doctrine? Is there something in my life I need to repent of? Is there something that I'm not letting go of that is grieving the Holy Spirit and quenching the Holy Spirit? Let us come before the Lord and, and examine our own hearts, brethren. And, but I, I don't want to leave you just with that, just feeling like, oh, I'm just so inadequate. We all are inadequate. I don't want to justify your sin, but I don't want to leave you with, you know, a feeling of condemnation and just, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so not like this church. No. I, I, I would that you would desire fervently. A, a work of the Holy Spirit in our midst and in your own heart. Powerful work. Let us pray for that, brethren. Let us continue to pray for it. And God will answer. Let us continue to pray as we obey. You know, it's not a substitute for obedience. As we obey, as we live the normal Christian life, putting to death sin, seeking our sanctification, seeking Christ's likeness, let us continue to pray for more of God's presence and power in our midst. Having said that, let's pray.